Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Wellie? Yes, Eliza? This lost archive, it is quite heavy. Rather dense from the looks of it. Not unusual. Some of these cases tell quite the epic But tale. they aren't marked with a silver fern. What? See, this case file is sealed with a silver fern. The silver fern. Eliza, this is quite the find. Actually, I have been searching for this missing dossier for years. There were a few vague references made to this mission in some of Director Murphy's Araha other cases. Murphy? My mentor? This was one of her earlier investigations. And finding this is akin to discovering the location of the lost Ark of the Covenant. Well done, Eliza. So, why is this file marked with silver foil? If memory serves, this is an ongoing mission, still active as of today. An active operation in New Zealand? Yes, in Omaru. Omaru? Uh, what possibly could be happening peculiar in Omaru? According to Director Murphy's passing references, quite a bit. The Amaru Incident by T. Morris Amaru, New Zealand Fall, 1878 The wind coming off the harbor carried the chill of Antarctica itself or so Agent Araha Murphy thought, as a gust cut through the various layers she wore. She may as well have been as naked as the day she were born. Stealing herself with a deep breath, Araha pressed onward from where she stood, a modest port that could have been mistaken for Wellington, or even Auckland in its ballyhoo. Once off the pier and stepping into the prosperous mining town, the similarities came to a rather abrupt halt. Where the aforementioned cities one the center of government, and the other the hub of commerce. Stretched for miles into the horizon, Amaru was more than contained within a comfortable corner of emerald green in the southern island of New Zealand. From where she stood, she could practically give herself an entire tour of this little hamlet, enjoying the benefits of gold mining. The industry was booming, gainfully employing both the Maori and white folk, although the more unpleasant work involving more laborious, more dangerous tasks were reserved for the former. Modern machines were attempting to alleviate the indigenous people of New Zealand from this back-breaking work, but even science experienced limitations, and so the white men financing these operations relied on the raw strength of these men who were once warriors. Amaru had not only made itself a name in the global gold market, but in light of that prosperity, had also done so with its architecture. Many of the large buildings of Amaru's town square were composed of a brilliant white rock, a variant of limestone, more impressive than its geological cousin, bluestone, resulting in breathtaking buildings and skyscapes that put both Wellington and Auckland to shame. Apart from the odd mining accident, and perhaps a scandal or two involving one of the more impressively built hired help, and the lady of the manor. Nothing outwardly peculiar ever really happened in this sleepy town. It was an unexpected ether missive from a local contact reaching out to the Wellington office. Apparently, Amaru was in need of assistance, and Agent Murphy was the only agent available. Considering she had just wrapped up a particularly prickly case in Auckland and was now whisked off from the top of the north to the near bottom of the south, Araha began to wonder if she were, in fact, the only agent, full stop. Time to earn your bob for queen, country, and empire, Araha muttered to herself as she gathered her bag sitting by her feet. I say, Murphy, trumpeted a voice from the throng of travelers, both leaving and entering the travel center behind her. Yes, you must be her. The description Director Spring sent me fits you to a title. Using the word impressive to describe the gentleman approaching her would be an insult, both to the word impressive and to the man described. 
His white tailored suit was so sharp that Araha was concerned her eyes would bleed the longer she stared at him. His ensemble was topped off by a wonderful pith helmet and dark leather boots that reached up to the man's kneecaps. He looked as if he were ready to go on a safari or a deep exploration of the bush. His pearl-colored mustache ended in thin, wide curls, while the salt-and-pepper hair reaching from his chin came to a fine point. His eyes seemed to dance with electricity, expectation, and perhaps a hint of mischief. "'Pleasure to meet you,' he projected with what could only be described as all the authority of the Empire behind him. He thrust his hand out in a greeting. "'Darling!' "'What did he call her?' "'I—I I beg your pardon?' "'Ian Darling,' he stated. "'I'm the local representative here in Amaru.' His hand extended an inch further. Araha blinked. She felt the heat tingle in her cheeks as she whispered, "'I must have misread it in the case file.' A lie, but Araha knew how to sell a lie. She smiled brightly, taking the offered greeting. "'Araha Murphy.' Darling's eyebrows raised slightly, his volume also dropping in order to preserve the sensitive nature of their profession. Junior agent, or... No, I've been full status for a time now, coming on three years. Fantastic, he proclaimed. So nice to see the ministry reaching across the cultural divide. It only makes the empire stronger, yes? The smile Araha conjured she knew would be soft and unassuming but inside she could hear her inner warrior screaming. The Ministry was indeed one of the few government agencies that made an effort to incorporate Maori into vital and essential operations, as opposed to mere support staff, such as custodial or kitchen staff. It was not necessarily a voluntary measure, but one as mandated by a strong Maori presence in New Zealand's Parliament. Ether-based communications did tend to slow down this process, but on occasion, the matter of staffing the ministry branches in New Zealand being one of those, Parliament back home would tend to take their time on implementing and enforcing new mandates. This cross-cultural movement would mean something if it were less of an idea encouraged from Pomiland. So, Mr. Darling, Araha said, you called in assistance. Yes, he said, ticking up her bag. Is this all? Well, there is the rather delicate equipment you requested the Home Office to send, along with me. Yes, 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 the astronomical equipment, of course, Agent Darling reported. I've already made arrangements for that gear to be spirited away to your homeroom at the Swan. I mean, is this all that you have with you? He asked again, lifting the modest suitcase of hers. No, that's all. Capital. Now, if you do not mind, we have a booth reserved for us at the Plow and Barrel. I assumed after the journey you might be a bit peckish. Actually, now that you mention it... With a wide grin and a quick nod, Agent Darling strode past her, carrying her luggage. I was warned, Araha muttered to no one in particular. Guess I'll be having a late lunch then. Handsomes and modified horseless carriages trundled on by as Araha followed the impeccably dressed elder agent to the modest pub just across the street from them. She glanced up at the sign for the plow and barrel. Catching the brisk southerly wind, the sign barely moved. Its lettering and artwork popped against the dark planks of wood. She looked down the length of the white rock building and then at the polished handle before her. At the very least, she would enjoy a slower pace to that of Wellington. Sometimes, Cases in the smaller towns tended to be one day of hard investigation, followed by three of peace and quiet. Perhaps this would be such a case. It had been a while since she enjoyed such a ministry-sanctioned getaway. Inside, she felt all eyes on her. In her initial sweep of the pub, there was not a single Maori in sight, not even working in the kitchen, just visible behind the bar. This establishment, it struck her, was quite posh, upscale, perhaps too upscale for the likes of her. What exactly was Ian Darling on about? Come along, Araha! Darling, leaning out from a booth from across the room, called out. 
she suddenly felt very aware of her tan skin and the kahu huru rustling softly against her suit. Swallowing back her fear and the growing resentment towards Agent Darling, Araha began the long walk to their booth. "'Excuse me, miss,' the woman said as she rose from her table. She was part of a party of five, all of them dressed in high ruffs, spotless taffetas, and fine lace decorating their afternoon fashion. "'We were wondering about the—' And with a gloved finger, she circled her chin. "'My tattoo. Yes, I am correct to assume it is tribal.' "'It is, miss, yes,' Araha replied. Something inside the pit of her stomach began to cramp, especially at the strange look in the woman's eyes. "'And what exactly is it called?' Araha took in another deep breath. "'It is called the Moko Ka'awe.' The woman knotted her brow. "'The Moko Moko Ka'awe.' Araha glanced over to the table where the rest of the assembled women sat. They all watched her intently not with scorn or revulsion, but with genuine interest. One of the younger women was sounding it out phonetically, writing it down on a small notepad. Fascinating. I also assume this has a story behind it. And it is mine, miss, she stated. This fascination with her, she intended to cease now. Please respect my privacy on this matter. The woman nodded. But of course. Thank you, my dear. She then returned to her table, and the women resumed their talk. Araha was expecting the discussion to be something about the savages or some such colonialist nonsense. But Araha noted their talk was about knitting, in particular about the inferior quality of yarn from a shop just two blocks from the pub. Araha continued to the back table, where Darling was waving cheerily to her. She proceeded through the pub, coming around the high-backed bench to find a third waiting upon her patiently. "'Good evening, Miss Murphy,' the stranger offered cheerily. "'The journey from Wellington to your liking?' "'Well enough,' Araha said. "'Crosswinds were a bit much, but it is to be expected in this corner of the world, Mr. Mayor, actually.' Conrad Bollings, at your service. He motioned to the two seats before them. So thrilled to have you here. Araha glanced over to Agent Darling, who remained completely unsettled that the esteemed mayor of Amaru was sitting across from them in a local pub. Usually the local government preferred to stay completely free of ministry business, plausible deniability and all that which proved itself to be quite versatile if the peculiar occurrence reached deep into the unknown or if it were merely confidence tricksters pulling a flim-flam over elected officials. But to meet in the local pub? Perhaps this was how things were handled in the smaller towns outside of Christchurch and Wellington. Even Dunedin regarded Amaru as a small town. When in Rome, she thought with a waggle of her eyebrows. It is so rare to have representatives from Wellington office here, Balling stated. Usually, I work with Asian Darling here exclusively. You look in need of a pint, maybe two, Darling commented as she slid next to him. May help restore that rather off-put look about you. Yes, and Araha never drank during office hours. A pint would be lovely. "'I see you've met Lady Attenfield,' Bolling said, sliding an empty pint glass over to her. "'I'm sorry, who?' "'Lady Adele Attenfield, founder and president of the Amaru Women's Literary Club,' he said, entering in a three-numbered sequence into a small pad built into the wall. He tilted his own glass to one side and hit the red button closest to him. From a curved spigot, beer poured into it as he spoke. She is quite a voice in this community, a pillar if there ever was one. Quite curious about my Mokokaoe. 
Darling raised his own pint glass to his lips. Was she now? Yes. Araha picked up the empty pint glass and considered its weight as she added, I do not take kindly to being a source of fascination. Oh, Tosh, Bolling said. Her interest was not only keen, but genuine. May I? And he motioned to the glass in her hand. Araha blinked. Was the mayor of Amaru offering to pull a pint for her? Well, uh, you strike me as a cider sort of lady, yes? Bollings returned his attention to the keypad. The plate displayed a series of three number sequences on one side, while the other offered what she could assume came from the tap. Lager, stout, wine, scotch, rum. A variety of favorites. Araha watched as the mayor of Amaru, upon entering a code and pressing a red button, filled her glass with a lovely golden cider. So, she began, graciously accepting the offered glass. What exactly brings the Ministry's attention to Omaru? Yes, Darling said with a wry smile. What exactly? I must admit, when Darling here told me you were en route from Wellington, I had to ask why, as it seems to be such a little thing. The mayor waggled a finger at Darling. You are quite the impulsive man, Darling. You have no idea. Darling sniggered, taking a sip of his pint. Anaha glanced at her fellow agent, trying to read his intent, but Darling was keeping his eyes locked on Bollings. The subject of Darling's unwavering attention, for his own part, was quite oblivious as he waved a dismissive hand. I'm sure it is just an optical illusion, something to do with the weather. After all, it has been unseasonably warm. I'm sure it's just a trick of the mind and mother nature. Try me, Maya, Araha urged, leaning forward a bit. Papa Tiranuku can be many things, but she is not a trickster. Bolling shrugged, took a sip of his beer, and then said, The Southern Cross is not where it's supposed to be. The Southern Cross is not where it is supposed to be. It is not so low in the horizon as one should see it, he began. And it is upside down, Darling added with a wry smile, his gaze still boring into the mayor, having swapped places with the phoenix. Araha nearly choked on her cider. Your constellations are swapping places in Ranganui's realm? As I mentioned, an optical illusion for sure, Bollings assured her. An optical illusion, Darling began, does not occur on alternate evenings. He didn't even make eye contact with Araha when she looked at him. You can set astronomical instruments by it, or throw their calibration off somewhat dramatically, whichever you choose. Ian, please, Bollings scoffed. I am telling you quite plainly that they are merely tricks of light and shadow on account of the odd weather we have been coping with here in the south. Rather bothersome, if you ask me. Araha looked between the two gentlemen, not sure how to read this matter. Has she made the journey from Wellington all for nothing? Or was there some merit to this odd tale of optical illusions? You mentioned these optical illusions are happening on a regular basis, she asked. Like clockwork, Darling replied, not taking his eyes from the inside of his beer. Should be such an instant happening tonight. Tonight? I believe nine o'clock. Rather punctual, this optical illusion. Well, if you two insist on stargazing tonight, Bolling said before polishing off his own pint, then you should know that the meteorologitron is predicting that the temperatures will dip low tonight. Bundle up. He extended his hand to Araha and shook it firmly. Miss Murphy, regardless of this folly, I do hope you enjoy your stay. Amaru will offer you skies that would dare to look at the edge of the universe. At least you will have that. Thank you, Maya. Araha returned. She watched the portly fellow take his time leaving the pub. 
stopping to converse with the aforementioned Lady Attenfield, along with many other patrons of the pub. Regardless if those carried with them the air of privilege, or if they were local workers having a grand time out in their Sunday best, Bollings did not know a stranger among them. They were his townfolk, his people, his charge. Araha smiled. A rather affable... Normally, I do not interrupt others in mid-thought, and I know I appear to be making it a habit with you, Darling spoke, both quickly and rather curtly, but not a word until he is out of sight. Her blood was now beginning to boil a bit. Particular was the word used by the Wellington office to describe Agent Ian Darling. That particular particularity having shortened his tenure in the Wellington office and placing him here in one of the more quiet corners of Aotearoa. Araha's brow remained in a slight knot as she sipped quietly on her cider, watching with her fellow ministry agent the mayor continue to stop at random tables before exiting the pub. Right then, Darling said, setting his pint glass down. This was the first time since her taking a seat in the pub that Darling actually looked at her. Miss Murphy, your thoughts. She shook her head. My thoughts? What do you want about, mate? Your thoughts on Bollings, on Amaru's well-to-dos. And he cast a quick glance to Lady Attenfield. And on this rather odd phenomenon we face here. Darling, instead of ignoring her, as he had since taking her seat, now hung on her every word. Araha's mind remained blank for a moment. What was her Amaru contact looking for? A keen observation made over a round at the local pub? She was still in need of a good shower after her flight. Well, let me see. And she took a swig of her cider. Hopefully it would help. Mayor Bullings comes across as a rather delightful man. Quite affable. Perhaps one of the more polite gentlemen I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. Yes, Darling said, pulling his beer closer. Polite. To a fault, one would say. Absolutely. The old plonker is rather charming, especially with his local subjects, isn't he? Araha blinked. What? Miss Murphy, you have not been in this charming little hamlet long enough to know little details, like what an absolute prat Conrad Bollings is, or that the only reason Lady Attenfeld would address you in public or private, for that matter, would be to make sure her dress was pressed and ready for the day and her boots to be polished to the finest of shines. But Bullings led me to believe her interest in me was genuine, Araha said, turning her gaze to the lady, enjoying a good laugh with her table. I think it was, seeing as the real Lady Attenfeld is a racist twat. Araha's head whipped back to Darling taking offense as to his crass description of the high-born lady. But then she took another moment to consider what he had just said. Did you say the real Lady Attenfeld just now? I did, he whispered. Do keep your voice down. So if that is not the real Lady Attenfeld and the mayor is not the real Conrad Bullings, he barked a laugh. Hardly. Then who are these people? And the moment her question had tumbled across her lips, a strong instinct told her she would instantly regret its answer. Venusians, Darling stated. Oh, dear God in heaven. Araha gripped her glass just a fraction tighter. Venusians. Yes, and Darling finished off his pint before adding, Amaru is the landing point for a full-scale invasion from the planet Venus. So much for her cider turning around this trip towards a proper investigation. Araha set her pint glass down before her. She needed something stronger. Venusians are replacing all the citizens of Omaru? Araha whispered tersely. 
she had hoped the idea would not sound so ridiculous when she repeated it. No, it was, in fact, utterly outlandish. No, not all the citizens of Omaru. That would be foolhardy and completely unbelievable, Darling insisted. The influential citizens of Omaru. The invasion force will never need subjugates to do the hard labor. So recruit those that wield societal power. Bloody clever lot, these Venusians. Eraha stared at the odd man for a few moments, the evening's chill refusing to warm up as, according to the meteorogatron, was totally contrary to the previous week's weather, which had been quite balmy for the season. Just my Irish luck. Araha cursed silently as she pulled tighter the bizarre camouflage cloak Darling had provided for her. The two of them looked as nothing more than wild bush, which, in the dark, was just fine. Had they tried this cover in the daylight, they would have stood out, as Darling's camouflage was a bright green foliage. Against the barren rock and dirt of Amaru, the disguise would not have been so effective. The only device that gave Araha more pause than their odd disguise was the even odder converted rifle mounted between them. At a glance, the weapon looked like an experimental she had heard tell of coming from the workshop of an American Clankerton that could harness the power of lightning. She could tell by how Darling hefted it that the bulky rifle must have weighed a few stone. The bell at the end of the barrel, if she recalled from what the R&D engineers once told her about this model, would release a charge that could easily take out a brick wall, provided the charge was effective and powerful. However, there was no sound of power building, no glow from the internal batteries, nor anything ominous coming from its many transformers. There was a soft hum coming from the rifle, though. Hopefully, that did not warrant concern. Hopefully. My own network, I should add, Darling proclaimed with an alarming amount of pride, are avoiding this subversion. Admittedly, Deputy Dangerfield does not care for the amount of ginger in the tonic I have prepared, but he still manages to force it down in the mornings. Araha furrowed her brow, searching her memory for an Agent Dangerfield, but not one sprung to mind. Had the Amaru office opened recruitment? I'm sorry, who is Deputy Roscoe Dangerfield? Stalwart lad, good value. I deputized him several months ago when I discovered... Excuse me. You deputized a civilian. She sucked in a long, deep breath and asked tersely, Can we even do that? You can do anything if you put your mind to it, and your back behind it, Darling stated. Do I have the authority to authorize civilians to serve at the behest of Her Majesty? Not a clue! However, needs must will out. And how many of these deputies are under your... She didn't want to say the word, and it stuck in her throat so hard she was afraid she would choke on it. Command. Darling counted on his fingertips, whispering a variety of names. Finally, he answered with 20, depending on if the captain is in port or not. Agent Darling. Araha began, the cold probably keeping her temper from boiling over as she was not happy about this peculiar occurrence one jot. She would rather handle a haunting than, of all things, something as ridiculous as a war between worlds. The Wellington office would get an earful from her, to be certain. Exactly why are we here with this monstrosity, I thought we were to take astronomical readings of these constellations changing coordinates. It's not going to happen. Not now, anyway. And what makes you say that? Because the mayor now knows we are on to him. This is why I brought you here, to the docks, just as confirmation of what I have told you. Araha stared at the gentleman for a few moments. Even in the darkness, she could still make out his distinguished profile, his high cheekbones, his magnificent pearl-white mustache. Darling, at one time, was considered one of the greatest agents in the New Zealand branch, perhaps even in the ministry itself. Everything changed while on assignment in North Hamilton 
when a trusted contact turned on him without warning, surrendering him to the Illuminati. Rumor from the extraction team had been they found him on an interrogation table, his wits seemingly scattered to the four winds. It was not that he could not do the job, but it was his increasingly erratic behaviors that sentenced him to a quiet end in Amaru, a gentle coda to a brilliant career. I have no doubt, Agent Murphy, you think me mad. Perhaps you are even considering my behavior playing into what you know about me from official reports. I'll admit, the Illuminati's mind-sifting technology rattled my brain to a deep degree. If it weren't for the conversations I have with myself, I would believe myself ready for a guest suite in Bedlam. Darling focused his ice-chipped blue eyes on her, and that focus took the breath from her. You will simply have to trust your fellow agents in the field. This is not some fool's errand I've invited you to attend. A reply was on Araha's lips, but his hand touching her shoulder stopped her words. In the distance, where warehouses stood quietly on the wharf, a lone figure emerged from the shadow. Agent Darling flipped a few switches on the modified rifle before peering through what looked like a starlight scope. Starlights of any make or model were still considered experimental by the Ministry R&D. In theory, starlights enabled agents to see clearly in the dark, just as they would in broad daylight. So far, in all her instances with this groundbreaking ether technology, Araha was less than impressed. Her goggles could barely tell the difference between a brick wall and an usher operative standing in front of the same wall. This widescreen scope, however, created a flickering image of the warehouses, its dark alleys, and a few bright flares that were suspended gas lights, offering dim illumination for signs. Darling reached to the stock of the rifle and detached from it a small suction cup connected to the starlight scope. He placed the cup against his ear and adjusted a few knobs on the device. Go on, he whispered, motioning with a free hand to the suction cup on the other side. Araha reluctantly followed suit, detaching the cup and placing it against her own ear. She stole a sideways glance at the scope, then immediately turned her attention back to it. Rendered quite clearly was a gray figure of a slender man emerging from the center warehouse. Whatever issue her goggles had in rendering what lurked in the shadows, this scope operated with astounding efficiency and clarity. Conrad? The voice crackled in Araha's ear. Conrad, are you there? The figure asked into the dark. What have I said to you about keeping your voice low? Came the mayor's response. Another figure, short and portly, stepped into the scope's field of sight. There was no mistaking the silhouette. It was the mayor of Amaru, Conrad Bollings. We must have a care. Things have become... complicated. Agent Darling pulled a small slider atop the scope towards them, and the image trapped in the rectangular ether screen grew larger and larger in scale. Araha can now see the stranger slowly shake his head. Their voices were clear, but only certain features were visible. Balling's rimmed spectacles were popping out against his pale head. A mole on the cheek of the stranger was also seen. Brass buttons on their waistcoats winked on catching nearby gaslight. Complications? We have far too invested at this present stage. Operations must proceed as we have planned. Yes, well, while we always have a plan and contingencies in case something fails, circumstances demand a spot of improvisation. Ballings pointed up towards the west where the Southern Cross could usually be found at this time of year. If we wait, we lose our present window. My host seems to be nurturing an emotion in reaction to the arrival of this Araha Murphy. I believe the humans call it hope. A rather curious sensation, I must admit. This ministry of peculiar occurrences, I believe, are a threat to our endeavor. We cannot take them for granted, so I have given the order 
to bring in the first wave of ground troops. The stranger barked a dry laugh. Have you lost your mind? Threat or no, we are already taxing our power supplies as it is. If we overload this primitive technology of this world with what you propose, we may need to rebuild our modest infrastructure here. We cannot afford any sort of delay. General, do you not see that we must act now? Once this final link is established, there will be no stopping us. Our forces will easily overrun the small town. Then we can commandeer other posts, claim this remote country, then begin work on defeating the British Empire from within. You speak with certainty, High Council, but you are not necessarily trained in the ways of military strategy. Araha wished she could see the expression on the mayor's face. Whomever this general was, he seemed to be taking a challenger's stance to his own. Did you call this meeting to discuss options, or are you calling this meeting out of a common courtesy? This mission falls under my command, General, regardless of the military's presence. Bollings turned to the General, standing as still as a statue. Even in the silence, Araha's skin prickled. I have given orders to proceed to Phase 3. The 1st Battalion will be arriving within the next two hours. The general shook his head. Amaru may indeed see traffic and activity that rivals this place my host knows as Los Angeles, but concealing several battalions of our soldiers will not be easy. You do forget. We have established our headquarters within a unique building. My host tells me it is the tallest of its kind in this planet's hemisphere. He scoffed. <laughs> These homo sapiens do take pride in the oddest things. We have prepped the top two floors with proper atmospheric conditions. They will be out of sight, out of mind. They will be tipping our hand as concealment and stealth require subtlety. And there is nothing subtle of what you are planning. The general took out a pocket watch, cursed at the primitive way time was measured, and then added, I still have time to countermand the order. You will do no such thing. Under Order 12 of the High Council, I will. Order 12? Bollings huffed. That is an antiquated mandate that none of my order will recognize. Not until I remind them. The general returned. Considering the distance we have traveled, I thought it best to plan for something like this. An overambitious high council member overreaching their standing, sending in countrymen and kinsmen as sacrificial kachiva for slaughter. I made myself familiar with the orders of the oracle. Mandates that will not be questioned. Seems you have thought of everything, General. Bollings nodded and extended a hand to him. Then, for the success of our mission, I acquiesce. The General took his hand. Long live the Empire. Quite. That's why this pains me so. Bollings' other arm barely registered in the starlight scope on account of how fast he moved. Araha heard a dull thump, which was immediately followed by a slow, deep rattling, the sound someone would make in taking a final breath. The only difference in this instance, the breath continued longer than humanly possible. As the general's gasp grew louder, his suit quivered in an odd fashion. First, Araha thought it was the way he was reacting to whatever Ballings had driven into his arm. Then it looked as if the suit was suddenly too big for his body. The general went silent just before collapsing at the feet of Bollings. The sound of bones clattering against one another was unmistakable. Araha brought her cuff up to her mouth to stifle a gasp, or perhaps scream, hard to say what she wanted to do in that moment. A hand touched her shoulder, and she looked over to Agent Darling, 
who seemed to calm her with her gaze. Balding's voice returned her attention to the etherscope. You will not see this glorious conquest come to fruition, but your sacrifice will not be in vain, General Katoff. Your attempts to pull your temporary command over my operation will be. Once he disappeared from the screen, Agent Darling turned the device off and replaced the listening cup back to its rest. He immediately flipped the support stand up into the barrel, powered down the other devices soldered along the barrel and stock, and slid backwards, away from their overlook point. Araha followed suit. Her mind was simply racing, as was her heartbeat. Her superiors at the Wellington office all stood by the opinion that Darling was a right nutter, his mind scrambled by an encounter with the Illuminati. "'Now do you believe me?' Darling asked her as he assisted her to her feet. "'We're being,' Araha stuttered. Even as peculiar occurrences go, this one was a bit much to accept. Ghosts? Trite, but a nuisance to be sure. Creatures of unknown and incomprehensible origins? Rather nasty, but nothing she couldn't handle. Mad scientists and secret societies? A clear and present danger. But this? Invaders? From another planet? Indeed. Watch the skies. Savages from the stars. Death from above. I have my theories about our twin planet, but when I stumbled on this nefarious plot, I called headquarters straight away. We have to get home office on the line. We have to organize a strike team. If I recall, Director Spring was organizing a regiment of shock troops trained for just this sort of thing. Darling shook his head as he loaded the rifle into the back of the hummingbird, or at least what Araha believed to be an electric transport, as this appeared to be cobbled together by all manner of objects, and pulled himself up into the driver's seat. No time! You heard, Bullings! Something is scheduled to happen tonight! Araha had not even settled into her seat when she felt herself thrown back into it. Her grip tightened on a handle over her head, and Darling took a sharp turn in the road without fear or concern. We need the Venusians to tip their hands, and we need to better understand what we are dealing with. Let them come. We will tend to them. Oh, we will, will we? So what exactly is our plan, then? The hummingbird skidded to a halt. Darling flipped a few switches on its dashboard, plunging them into a thick, oppressive darkness. It was the kind of darkness that terrified Araha as a child, as if it would suffocate her. Her mind was still trying to process everything she had seen along with what Darling had revealed to her. Invaders from Venus. Could that even be possible? A skepticism was attempting to claw through this bramble of facts and conjecture presented to her. But it was all for nothing. Her rational discipline could not explain away what she had seen with her own eyes. Then Araha looked to Darling. Why did we stop? We're waiting for Bullings to turn left. Excuse me? And then her eyes turned forward to an intersection ahead of them. Another autocar, this one chugging with the signature sound of a combustion engine, approached the circle, followed the pattern, and took the route that Darling had predicted. How did you... Bullings described their headquarters as the tallest of its kind in this planet's hemisphere, which could only mean they have a base of operations at the Mix Green Elevator. Darling powered up the Hemingbird and drove in pursuit of Bullings, only five-story building of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. Their autocar remained far behind the mayor's own. Araha took in a deep breath of the chilled sea air. Whatever Darling was planning, she would have to trust him. Scrambled wits or not, he had discovered the incredible. Facts were on his side, and now she too was a believer. It was now upon their shoulders to keep the enemy at bay. Darling pulled his car closer to the curb and powered it down. He motioned for Araha to join him on his side of the hummingbird. She came around from the back of the car to see Darling engaging switches welded into the outside body. The panel in front of her slid down, revealing a small arsenal of modified pistols and rifles. She recognized some of these firearms, 
but they had all been modified, supposedly, by him. I recommend a close-range and long-range weapon, Darling offered. Her eyes fell on a crack shot, a pair of Thor's overhands, and a mountaineer, which she helped herself to. Darling helped himself to an Edison Wesson rifle and a bulldog, all of these models modified with all manners of tubing, compressors, and the like. Hobby of yours? Araha asked as she checked her pistol's chamber, then stuffed her pockets with additional bullets. I regard each sidearm and rifle introduced in the Ministry Arsenal as a base template for my imagination. He regarded the crack shot with a smile. The changes to that model I am particularly keen on. Adaha took a closer look at the bullets loaded in her crack shot and noted they did appear larger than the usual caliber for this weapon. They also appeared longer, more appropriate for a sniper rifle. Between this, the overhands, and her taiha, she would be ready for whatever awaited her in the tall building before her. Ready, my sweet? Darling asked as he powered up his rifle's modification. Normally, she would take offense to such a familiarity, but there was something rather charming about this swashbuckler before her. As soon as I know your plan. Oh, yes, of course, he said. Clearing his throat, he motioned to the Meek's Grain elevator building and said, We go in and stop the madman and his Venusian cohorts. Araha blinked. I beg your pardon? You just want us to go in and save the Empire? Well, he shrugged, that is what we do. Not with ten bullets in a dream we don't, she hissed. We need some sort of strategy. This is a kind of strategy. The swashbuckling charm was now wearing thin with her. It's amazing you white folk even found Aotearoa with that sort of approach. With a shake of her head, Araha flipped compressors and waited for indicators to show green before stepping in front of Darling. You follow me. You follow my commands, yes? Darling nodded, his grip on the rifle tightening. Stay low. Araha and Darling crept closer to the perimeter, coming to a stop a few yards before the front door, a modest threshold that made no pretense of what the building was. However, in the dim gaslight of the street lamps, Araha could see the approach of Ballings, as well as the two men flanking the entrance. Their gesture of a fist to the heart, followed by the hand turned downward, waist height, Araha could only conclude was a salute of some kind. I could take the gods out with my rifle. A whisper came from behind her. Araha turned to stare at him. Absolutely not. We have no idea how many are in that structure. Even if you have enough velocity in your shot to take out both men, I can assure you the base itself will be alerted. Good point there, Murphy, he returned, a bit crestfallen. That wall there, she pointed to the far side of the entrance. If we can reach that unseen, we could very well have a way in. So, in need of a distraction, are we? he asked. That once endearing twinkle in his eye, Araha now found a touch unsettling. Yes? Darling beckoned her with a finger to follow her, and they silently crossed the street to a bank across from the building. He adjusted a few settings on his rifle, and then took aim through the scope. Now, he muttered, the lady wishes for a distraction. Let's see if this suffices. The rifle made a hard, sharp crack in the night, as if someone had snapped a bullwhip, but it was the lamp outside the pub that suddenly exploded. The guards from the Meeks building glanced to one another and quickly made for the small fire spewing from where the bullet had struck. This rifle offers three options now, Darling said as he slipped the rifle across his back. I thought incendiary rounds were in order. Well done. Araha said, clasping his shoulder. Now let's move. Both of them sprinted across the street, and the wall appeared to grow larger the closer she drew to it. Araha glanced at the mountaineer in her hand. The indicators were green, but it was balanced for one. Just keep running for the wall after firing, Darling huffed. And trust me, 
Araha pointed the mountaineer up to the third floor row of windows, armed the grappling hook with a flip of the switch, and when the gun hissed sharply, Araha fired. The cable continued to unwind until she heard a distant strike of metal into stone. Retract, Darling said. But we're not. Do it, girl. Araha's thumb activated the hydraulic winch inside the gun, and she felt herself being yanked forwards towards the oncoming wall. She then felt hands round her waist, and Darling jumped, taking her with him. Their feet struck the wall, and then again, and then again. Darling was angling them in such a manner that she expected the cable to break or for the gun to fail, but instead they were running up along the wall. She could see the edge of the wall coming closer, and that was when Darling's grip tightened on her. They cleared the barrier and now swung into darkness. Darling's thumb slipped between Araha's and the mountaineer's controls, and he turned the grappling hook's motors on reverse. The rope began to slacken, but not for long, as they began something of a controlled fall into this dim yard behind the Meek's building. To be continued. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. An Imagine That Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.